Morning, everybody. Okay, I know we started on time, but come on. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Ah, there you go. There you go. Suddenly, I'm a junior high pastor. What happened? Um, we're in John 6 today. We're in John 6. If you've got a copy of God's Word, open it to John 6. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Perschbacher, could you give me a hand? Like some people don't have, um, I need to grab a couple Bibles. Some people, if you need um, a copy, just slip up your hand. My man Andy plays drums, distributes Bibles. He's intense. One. Anybody else? Yeah. Bible is to sermon what scuba gear is to deep sea diving. You're going you're gonna to need it to survive on uh, the next 40 minutes. Um, today I want to um, talk to you about the theme, Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Over here, Andy, we got a couple. Sorry. Good. Nice. I want to talk to you about the theme, Union with Christ, this morning. Um, and it's, I know when I say that, some of you kind of like your eyes glaze over, like, Union with Christ. I mean, I already, I already got enough to worry about already. Let me talk to you about the, uh, the overwhelming spiritual life, the overwhelming Christian life. Because when you first come to Christ, what you have is... Um, you got salvation, and it's such, it's such good news, isn't it? You're saved. How many people remember the, like, the day, you, like the time where you came to know Christ? Such good news. You have salvation. Yes. But the overwhelming spiritual life says that the next, you know, after a minute you get, okay, well, with salvation comes a new identity in Christ. You got salvation. You got a new identity in Christ. Okay, that's pretty great. Oh, that's pretty great. But then the problem is the next thing that comes, okay, you need to start reading your Bible. Do you know that? You've got to study God's Word. Have you heard? Do you know that? You've got to study, you gotta study God's Word and you've got you to memorize it, okay? You can't just like read it and just know it like some Bible fathead. You've got to get it in your heart, okay? So that's all you, salvation. New identity, study the Bible, scripture memory, and, okay, spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are important. You got to get, you got spiritual gifts, you got to carry them. Like, it's part of who you are, your spiritual, your, the, the overwhelming Christian life. Because the next thing that you get, okay, all right, well, new life. You've got new life in Christ that's part of that. That's important. Oh, boy. Now, okay, church membership. That got dark. <laughs> okay, church membership and uh, I got tithing. I got tithing here. Tithing is important. Okay, do not. Do, okay, then I've got. Okay, next thing I've got is oh, accountability. So you're going to need to get into a house church or a, um, a life transformation group. You got to get a small groups are just like a key part. Okay, if I pick up accountability, I'm going to drop spiritual gifts. The overwhelming spiritual life. The overwhelming Christian life. I mean, I didn't even get to social justice. I didn't get to adoption. I didn't get to Abba's answer. I didn't get to... Um, I didn't get to a lot of things, and already, 
I feel full. And the, do you know this feeling? Is this how your spiritual life feels? Is this how your Christian life feels? Like it's, okay, it's another thing. It's another thing. This morning, I proclaim union with Christ. Union with Christ. You want some help holding all of that? Union with Christ. This is going to make no sense on the MP3 when people listen to it online. Okay, so I've been holding like cans of soda, um, and now I'm, I promise it was important, okay? (laughs) Sorry. My dad's pretty much the only person who listens to me online, so. Hi, Dad. (sighs) Today, our passage talks about the importance of union with Christ, how it works, what it's about. It's in John 6. It's going to be verses 25 through 41. And in this passage, Jesus is doing something that he often does. He's done something really incredible, and now he's trying to explain it. Sometimes he'll teach something really incredible, then he's got to go back and explain it. Here I'm thinking about like Matthew 13, where Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and then later on he's like, okay, I got to explain that one to you guys. You guys didn't get it. Okay, here's what's happening. Our passage today, John 6, 25 through 41, is Jesus explaining the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, okay? That's what's happened at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus has fed 5,000 people. So let's just take a minute and let's go over just, you know, a little Bible 101 on Jesus feeding the 5,000 so we can understand what he's about to explain to us. Because growing up in church world, I don't know about you, but when I heard Jesus feed the 5,000 part, it was always about the little boy with the lunch Maybe because I was little and I had a lunch pail that I just, that really like resonated with me. So the, if I remember correctly, which I don't, feeding the 5,000 means bring what you have, bring, use what you got. That's the message of feeding the 5,000. Use, even if you have a little, just use what you've got. Okay, well that couldn't be further from the truth for the story of the, of the feeding of the 5,000, all right? Take a peek with me, look in, in John 6, look in verse 4 for the key for what this is about. Okay, look, John 6, verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Jesus, in a really amazing way, is going to be, the musician term is riffing. He's going to be riffing on this Old Testament story, on the Old Testament Moses story about the Passover. It's amazing. Earlier in John 5, he's been kind of riffing on the Sabbath. Uh, During the Sabbath, he's kind of like talking about it. Now it's on the Passover. Jesus is going to be talking about Moses and the story of the Passover and how Jesus comes to fulfill all of those pictures. It's an amazing story. So think about it. Think about it. Think Moses for a second. And now think the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus goes up on a mountain and gives God's word to the people. Sound familiar? Does that sound Moses-y? Two, the people are hungry. And Jesus provides supernatural food. Does that sound kind of Moses-esque? I got to figure out the right way to say that. I'm going to stick with Moses-y the whole time. And the, the... And then at the end, there's extra, there's 12 baskets, remember? There's 12 baskets, 12 baskets, 12, are you kind of seeing how that sounds Old Testament-ish? Now the people get it, look, they, um, they say verse 14, this is 614, 
the people see the signs. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, what's that? That's talking about the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses said, one day after me, God will send another prophet like me. Listen to him. So the people are seeing what Jesus is doing and they get it. They're like, it's the new, it's the new Moses. And so what do they do? They, they take the prophet, verse 15, and they want to make him king. He says no. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's not done, though. Jesus has a whole nother section of, of ways that he's going to riff on this theme. Now he takes his people, his 12, and he sends them across a sea. Does, that, I mean, that rhymes with a, a great Moses story, the Red Sea, Remember? How does, the, how does the sea get parted? There's a strong wind in Exodus 13 that, that parts the sea. Well, now there's a strong wind, and they're in trouble. So Jesus comes walking on the water out to them and says, what does he say? Look right there in your Bible. This is verse 20. What does Jesus say to the disciples there in the, in the boat? What does he say? Hey, he says, it is I. Now, if you could see the Greek on that, here's, here's the exact words he says. He says, ego eimi. He says, I am. Sound familiar? That's kind of a key motif in that Moses story. And then, I mean, it's one of the most amazing, I mean, my Bible, the heading says, Jesus walks on water, but that's like miracle number 12 in that little paragraph. I mean, he, he's establishing his people by sending them across the sea. He comes walking on the water. That's nice. He stills a storm. Notice the it doesn't even say that part, though. Verse 21, it says, they were glad to see him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So he, like, transports the boat supernaturally. Amazing. He declares his divinity. Like, all of these, that's, that's quite a paragraph. That's, that's, a, that's a chock full of nuts paragraph. And the people are, the, the larger people are, in, are just captivated by this, and they know something's going on. And they're seeing something, but they're not quite understanding. And they come to Jesus. And they're looking for explanation. And that brings us to our text today. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read starting in verse 25, and I'll read through verse 41. When the people found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me 
shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Um, how lost we would be if we had to, to guess what you were like or speculate about what you required. You have not left us in the dark. You have spoken. You've spoken through your prophets and through your apostles. You've spoken through your son. And now we have his words in our hand pray that you would help us to come to, to see him. To, Holy Spirit, help us. We are so lost without your um, um, work in our life. Where, what else can we do this morning? Where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Okay. This text gives us three warnings about people who see something but don't get it, about people who, who perceive something but don't understand what's happening. And the text gives, us, gives them warnings and they hit home for us. Okay, here's the three warnings that I see that I think help explain this passage to us. Warning number one, the people saw the sign but they missed the significance. The people saw the sign, but they missed the significance. How many of you have ever made the drive from Chicago to Grand Rapids? From Chicago to Grand Rapids. You are too young. You were in the car when that drive was made. Okay, I believe that. I believe that. Okay. Whew. You're nine. Okay, good. If you've made that drive, then you know the quaint charm of Geary, Indiana. <laughs> Geary, Indiana is the um, source of um, great terror for my wife and I. We, um, early in our marriage, had to make a stop in Geary to um, fill up on some gas in a story that we will never repeat. Um, one time we were driving through Geary, Indiana, and one of my boys said, Daddy, is this Mordor? <laughs> He, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Now, of course, at the North Point campus last week when I preached this, of course, I met like seven people who were from Gary, Indiana, and four people who were named Gary who were offended that I besmirched their name. Okay, so just imagine you're making that drive. It's not a great place to be. Just imagine it's a fictitious sign, but imagine that there's a sign there that says... 152 miles to Grand Rapids. Well, I mean, that sign would be an encouragement. That sign would be pretty, like, I'm, 
okay, good. I'm on the right way. I'm not always going to be here. The promised land is ahead. Here we go. All right. I mean, you might get a little excited about that. You might, you know, if you're driving, you might tap your uh, passenger and be like, hey, look at the sign, 152 miles, 152 miles to Grant. Yeah, yeah. Hey, kids, 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 look at the sign. Look, 152 miles to Grand Rapids, right? That would be understandable. But it wouldn't be smart to stop the car, pull over, get out of the car, take a picture of the sign, take a picture of you with the sign, tag yourself on Facebook. Wow, look at this. This sign has brought me a lot of comfort. I was feeling discouraged. This sign. Do you understand the foolishness of that? You're still in Gary, Indiana. (laughs) Don't stop because of the sign. The sign is just poor. Just imagine now you're singing a song. You're singing 152 miles, 152 smiles till Grand Rapids. (laughs) Would it surprise you to know I've actually taught songwriting courses? Probably. You would, that would be seeing the sign, but missing the significance. No, no, no. The sign means go. The sign means keep going. These people saw a sign and they missed the significance. Jesus talks about this um, just briefly with these really fantastic words. He says in verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes. What's the food that perishes? What's the food that perishes? I've, I did a little bit of digging on this, and uh, most of the people who um, talk about this at all just sort of say like, well, that's like, that's like money. That's like houses. That's like your retirement plan. That's like the, you know, that stuff's all going to burn. That's like, you know, trying to do something just on this earth. I mean, it's all burning anyway. Don't worry about that. Labor for the heaven stuff. Well, I don't think that's right. And I don't think, Jesus, Jesus is, he's riffing on Moses here. So think about it. Moses' time. What's the food that perishes? Um, Exodus 16, God sends manna to the people. In this miraculous provision, he's feeding two million people every day. That's, that's amazing. But what happens is, God says, I'm going to send manna every morning, gather enough for today, don't try to pick up two days' worth. Remember this part of the story? And then it says in, in Exodus, um, okay, this is Exodus 16, verses 4, and then I'll skip down to 19 20. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, so that I may test them. Oh, is that what that was about? So that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my way or not. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. I'd love to know what the Hebrew word for stank is. It's probably really, Rod would just be all over that, wouldn't he? And Moses was angry with them. So listen, here's the, here's the, bread, here's the bread that perishes. It's taking God's things without true faith in God. 
God says, look, I'll give you bread every morning. And you're like, well, there's bread for today. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. I need maybe three days worth just in case this whole bread shows up from heaven thing doesn't exactly work tomorrow. I'm not sure if I believe you. That's the bread that spoils. It's receiving God's provision without faith in him. It's grabbing that sign without understanding its significance. And that's what the people did. The people saw the sign, but they missed the significance. Because, you know, signs, they, they signify, right? Let me say that a different way. They signify. They signify something. And that we need to recognize what are these things pointing to and not get caught up on them. Second warning. This is seen in verse 14, but implications throughout the um, rest of the chapter. The people see the prophet, but they miss the priest. The people see the prophet, but they miss the priest. So interesting. They, they see the, the Moses picture. They see this must be the prophet, and they want to make him king. So interesting. Why, doesn't, why does Jesus react negatively? Why doesn't he let them just make them king? Isn't that kind of what he's after? Isn't he trying to become the king? Isn't that how it works? Why not just grab onto this movement? He reacts negatively because he understands that they have to see him as the priest in order to understand him as the king and the prophet. He is the bread of God who will give his life for the world. Jesus isn't just here to speak God's word and to give us a good example. Okay, that's what, that is a really, really common problem that we have with Jesus. We want his teaching. We want his words, his wisdom, his teaching. And we want his example. But we kind of shy away from him as priest, the fact that he has to do something, accomplish something to get us right with God. We want to reduce him down to the prophet who speaks the good advice that we need. Just give us, just watch for this. Watch for people, watch in your own heart, for someone that reduces grace down to teaching and example. That's what it is. Jesus had some really good words for us to, truth for us to learn that we need to learn. He's got some really good advice. And he showed us, he was a loving person that showed us how to love. And when you reduce Jesus down to his words that he said, his teaching, his prophet, and you reduce him to only his good example, his king, you're missing his work as priest. And Jesus won't, doesn't do that. He refuses to be anything except who he really is. He doesn't play games. You notice that? Such good news for us. You cannot understand Christ until you see him give his life as a ransom for many. All these people had seen is a mountain of bread. And they missed that this was a signpost to himself. He's demonstrating that only he is the bread of life that can satisfy their souls. He's not just to be reduced to his teaching and his example. He is a priest who made us right with God. So important. Okay, thirdly, first one is they saw the sign, but they missed the significance. Secondly, they saw him as prophet, but they missed him 
as priest. Thirdly, the people see the importance, but they miss the impossibility. The people see the importance, but they miss impossibility. The people want to get involved. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, they say, the people say to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Skip over to verse, let me, I think it's 44 off the top of my head. Yeah, there you go. Verse 44, Jesus says, Listen, here's, here's the work of God. You have to believe in me. And then he says in verse 44, by the way, it's impossible. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, wow. Wow, why would Jesus command something impossible like that? That doesn't seem kind. That seems cruel. Jesus is commanding the impossible. And it may seem that way unless you've been reading the earlier parts of John because John is full of Jesus giving impossible commands. Let's go backwards. John 5, there's a paralyzed guy who's next to a pool that has, like, let me do the quick version. Angel comes and touches, so it's like angel water he thinks will heal him. And the man says, Jesus, will you please help me get into the water? I need to get into the angel water. And Jesus basically says, well, get up yourself to a paralyzed guy. Okay, well, John 4, we're going backwards. There's a woman at the well who wants living water. And Jesus says, oh, go get your husband. I I can't do that. Okay, let's go back to John 3. There's Nicodemus. Nicodemus wants to understand the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, go get in your mom's uterus again. And he's like, how? Serious? You can't do that. Nobody can do that. Why are you commanding the impossible? Why why is Jesus commanding the impossible? Why? It's because the most loving thing that Jesus can do is reveal to you that you can't. He is spending a lot of time and a lot of energy to reveal to you that you can't. Have you, have you thought about that? Like, what percentage of the... What percentage... <laughs> check, check, check. I'm so worried about... Oh, it's on futility, right? What a great illustration. I wish I would have thought of that. What percentage of life circumstances are trying to show you that you can't? I'm going to say about 100. I'm going to say about 100. Are you getting that? Do you know that's one of the the main lessons of being married? Because she's mailing that to you in triplicate right now, okay? You can't. Uh, This is one of the things I thought when I was going to, when we were expecting our first child, I was so excited. Now I was finally going to be able to raise a a little guy and, and, and help him, form him into the image of Christ. And what I didn't realize is the main part of the work is me being formed into the image of Christ because of working with this little guy right? We can't. We can't. That's the lesson of our marriage. That's the lesson of your singleness. That's the lesson of your parenting. That's the lesson of your career. 
That's the lesson of your unemployment. We can't. And so hear his command for the impossible. Because if, if you don't hear his command as something that's impossible, then all you need is advice and example. Jesus, tell me what to do. Give me a couple tips and tricks on how to do that. You know, you do it the first time so I can kind of see how to navigate it. And then I'm up. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. I'm a game changer. And it's, well, if you're thinking that, you're not getting it. And so he'll happily bring another truckload of you can't into your life. It's funny because it's absolutely true. And uh, here it comes. You can't. And so when you see the mountain of you can't, you're like, I don't need advice. I don't need example. I need a savior. I need a savior. And now Jesus is all ears. Well, he's been all ears the entire time, but you needed to get that. And he'll remind you again, because it's not just that one time you needed a savior. It's not like you got saved and now, okay, now you can do it all. No, no, no. You still need him. So we need to recognize his command for the impossible. We need to recognize our inability. We need to come to him and believe he is our savior. Wow. That brings me to this section on union with Christ. Union with Christ. Because Jesus is not a baker, he's a bunker. Okay, let me help you with that. A baker is a person who bakes. I gotta work on that for second service. It's a person who makes bread and then gives it away, right? It's a person who makes bread and then gives it away. So you go to the baker. You get bread, and then you take it home and you eat it. If something tragic happened at the bakery while you were at home, that would be sad, but, I mean, you still have, you still have your bread, right? And a lot of people think that Jesus is like that. This is how he works. So, um, like our um, righteousness, our righteousness, for example, is just something that he gives us. He like, oh, welcome to the Jesus store, righteousness. Okay, we just baked some fresh righteousness this morning. Here's some for you. Now go, enjoy. Have a great day. Come again tomorrow. The Holy Spirit, you need some Holy Spirit? Let me just break off a piece for you. Here you go. Here's some Holy Spirit. Have a great day. Have a great day. We'll see you next Sunday. Come, Come get some more next Sunday. No, he's not a baker. He's a bunker. A bunker is something different than a baker. A bunker is something that you only get the benefits of when you are inside of it. If you purchased a bunker, you have the receipt. It is not helping you until you are inside of the bunker. You, someone attacks you, you don't turn to, I don't turn to my wife and I'm like, don't worry, honey, I bought a bunker. We should be fine. Like, no, unless you are in the bunker, you have none of its benefits. This is what Jesus is like. So why do we have righteousness? It's because we have his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but that comes from works. We have righteousness that comes from faith. We actually have, look, just get this. We have his righteousness, not some generic, hey, you did a good job today. Here's some righteousness. No, you, you actually have the righteousness 
of Christ is yours because you're in him. Okay, now the Holy Spirit. Oh, you have, why do you have the Holy Spirit? Not because you're having a really good day. Not because you've made a couple of wise decisions and now he's okay to live inside of you, but later he'll leave because I have some friends that have that mentality. Here's some wonderful freedom for you. You have the Holy Spirit because Jesus has the Holy Spirit. And because you're inside of him, you have all of his benefits because you're inside of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit because you're in the bunker. Because you're in Christ, you have all of Christ's benefits. What a glorious truth. So union with Christ gives us three protections. This is going to form the last little bit of the message this morning. Union with Christ protects us from viewing the benefits of Christ apart from the person of Christ. It protects us from that. It protects us from seeing the good things in our lives as separate from Jesus. Just imagine um, um, this summer, um, this is true, my my grandfather passed away this summer and um, uh, he's a great godly man. I think I've talked about him a couple times and I'll talk about him a bunch of times more. But at a funeral, you hear all sorts of nonsense. You hear all sorts of nonsense at a funeral. Um, And as somebody who's getting a master's degree in systematic theology, I think the Lord like puts me in those scenarios just to drive me a little crazy. Um, But you hear things like, my grandpa had um, club feet and he loved baseball. And so of course, like you just heard like, well, you know, Walter's got no club feet now. He's running up and down right field today. You're like, wow. <laughs> well, you know, like, um, you know, rainy day during the wake. Well, there's sunshine where he is. Like, huh? Do you see heaven as a place with Plenty of time for leisure activities. Plenty uh, where there's no sadness, where there's no um, lack, where there's no disasters, where there's no conflict, where there's plenty of great food. Or do you see it as a place where you're with Christ? Because if if you would be satisfied with a heaven that would have your favorite sports, your favorite weather, your favorite climate, your favorite people, and not Jesus? That is really not good. Do you understand? Don't view the benefits of salvation apart from the person of Jesus Christ. So union with Christ protects us and helps us see how these are connected. Secondly, union with Christ protects us from isolation. Protects us from isolation because our union with Christ, good news, unites us to each other. You know, so all of the the people that you know who love Jesus but hate the church... They do not understand the actual essence of salvation. People who say, I connect better with God when I'm golfing. Must golf better than I do. (laughs) 
Or I connect better with God just in nature. I just, listen, I connect better with him when I just see stars. When I see stars, I connect with God better than I do with a group of people. Well, that's someone who understands Jesus as a baker. Like here, we now have a relationship, the two of us. We're good. That's not how it works. When you're united with Christ, guess what? So is everyone else. (laughs) So you're actually now united with each other. We're actually united with each other. So church unity is not something for us to achieve. It's something for us to act like, but it's not something for us to like work for. We have it. We are united. We as a church, we are united. Why? Because we're united with Christ, we're united to each other. So sometimes we don't act like what we are, but we really are united to each other. And union with Christ protects us from isolation. We are all united to Christ. Thirdly, union with Christ protects us from inactivity. So this is, oh, that would have been clever. I just thought of this just now, the third time I've preached this sermon. I should have had all the social justice ones be Mountain Dew. Mountain, like, D. Okay, fine, I won't use that the next service. Fine, with that response. But listen, when we're united with Christ, social justice isn't that extra thing that we try to tag on if we have time. Why? Because we're united to an active Savior. We're not trying to, to bring, um, we're not trying to be the Savior to this situation. We're united to the Savior. So we don't, it protects us from inactivity, and it also protects us from our attempts to be the Savior. I just want to take a, a second and talk about um, a phrase that I've heard from some really great people that I'm just a little skeptical of this phrase, which is um, incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry. Remember how Jesus left heaven to come down to a sinful world and minister? That's what we're going to do by leaving the heaven of Grand Rapids. And going to Haiti. Not not a parallel move. Not an analogous um, decision. We do not incarnate. By the way, we can never actually become um, who we're not. We never become Haitians. We're just still who we are. We just have to be that. But here's what we can be. We can be united to an incarnational Savior. We're united to him. So now it's not our presence that's um, redemptive. It's his. We don't have to be that person that's trying to save this group of people. We're united to the person who is, but we're not him. Does that make sense? Such a helpful, helpful protection for us. We're united to the incarnated Savior. We're not the first Adam, thank God. We're not the second Adam, that's Jesus. And we don't have to try to be the third Adam. It changes us from being messiahs to witnesses. We can be witnesses for Christ. We can look. See this? I'm I'm pointing. I am the sign that says, "I'm, I'm still Gary, Indiana. But look. Look at that. Look at Christ. Look, look at him. He is the answer for these things. I'm here working with you, working for you, pouring my life out, 
but look at him. Look at him. That's what our lives are called to be. So this morning, we want to um, conclude our service with a time of communion. Communion is one of the great, is the greatest picture celebration of union with Christ. Similar, um, next week we'll be doing baptism. Baptism is showing our union with Christ. This is one of the reasons why we immerse people in, in baptism. If you want to have that argument, go ahead. I'll be having some fun somewhere else. But the reason why we um, celebrate baptism by immersion is because it's picturing we're united to him in his death. Jesus died for us, but he also, we also died with him. Galatians 2.20 says we've been crucified with him. United with him in his death and in his resurrection. We're united to him. And secondly, communion points us to this truth that he is the bread of heaven. So in one sense, it's really dangerous to end a sermon on John 6 with communion because the danger is that you see the sign, but you miss the significance. John 6 is not about communion. Communion is about the truth of John 6, that Jesus Christ is the bread from heaven. There's, there's a verse in John 6 that people often get tripped on. This is verse uh, 51 through about 56. Let me just read that to you and, and help us understand, use this as a transition into communion. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Missed the significance. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now that is Jesus using the strongest metaphor possible to say, do not view my benefits apart from me. I am this benefit. I am the bread of life. Do not look for any benefits outside of me. It's my flesh. This is, this is it. You're looking for the way to heaven? I'm the way. Not show us the way, Jesus. I am the way, he says. Let me just show you a parallel up here in verse 35. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So how do you eat? By coming to Christ. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How, what a thirsty land we live in. What a thirsty life we lead. How needy we are as people. How can we drink? By believing in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us today. Give us, give us spiritual eyes to see just beyond the signs and these symbols to the truth that they signify. Jesus, what, 
good do we have in our life apart from you? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And all of the benefits that we have are because we're united to you. Thank you, Jesus, for not just showing us the way because we would mess that up and not for just teaching us how to walk in the way because we would mess that up and we have messed that up. Thank you, Jesus, great shepherd of the sheep, for caring for us and for coming to die for us, for dying in our place and uniting us to you. Would you give us eyes of faith to see? Lord, I'm just really aware of my inadequacies and trying to explain this great truth. I pray that this picture of your body and your blood would make clear this supernatural truth. We love you and we need you. Help us to have eyes of faith to see you today. In your name we pray, Jesus.